This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you very, very much, uh, Paul. Uh, that was, you know, I, I often say that I don't like to be introduced by somebody who just reads my CV or my resume or something, um, but this is possibly the most truly thoughtful introduction I've ever received, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the, the care you put into reading, reading so many things. Um, and it's also nice to share in the honoring of your career at, at this point as somebody who, um, long before we met, had admired your book on campuses, which is uh, one of, it is the best book on one of my favorite subjects, and uh, really the, the ultimate book on, on that subject. Uh, so it's especially nice to be part of uh, taking, taking note of what isn't the end of your career, but the movement from one phase of it to another. Um, anyway, it's especially wonderful to be here at Stanford. Uh, Michael Marinan Marin uh, mentioned that uh, you may not have a Renaissance scholar uh, on the staff of this department. I don't know about that. I can certainly say that you do not have a Renaissance building um, here. Uh, but uh, it is a pleasure to be here in any event um, and to be in a place that is quite far away from what I will talk about for the next, uh, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, uh, which is in fact ground zero in New York. Um, and also a little bit about an equally far away place, New Orleans, which it seems impossible not to think about if the subject is urban catastrophe and reconstruction in our time. When Michael Marinan asked me to deliver the Christensen lecture this year, he said that he thought the struggle about rebuilding in New York would be a good subject, and since, as Professor Turner has just said, I've recently written a book about it called Up From Zero, I was very happy to agree. Of course, since then, we've had a far greater challenge in, the cat in this category than the one we face in New York. And I'll talk about that one in a moment. But let me start with New York, since, as you've heard, it's what I know best. I should tell you that I had originally intended that this book, Up From Zero, have a subtitle called Architecture, Politics, and the Rebuilding of New York. When I turned in the manuscript to the editors at Random House, they said they only wanted to make one substantive change. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, you have to change the subtitle. Because, they said, the original one, my subtitle, didn't reflect the realities. You haven't written about architecture and politics, they told me. You've written about politics and architecture. A subtle difference, but a powerful one. It gave me pause. I hadn't realized that I was writing more about politics than architecture. But I obviously had been, and if, because in fact, if you recorded what was actually going on, that was what the reality was. Anyway, I gave in, in part because I realized it was true, and in part because they told me that whatever I thought, books with politics in the title sold better than books with architecture in the title, so that was that. <laughs> Not too long ago, I spoke at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., and the first question someone asked me was not why did you write this book, but why did you write it now? Why didn't you wait until the buildings were finished and you had something to critique? And I was tempted to answer because I was not sure I would live so long. And while that was a flip remark, it was not entirely off the mark. This is a long, slow process, and it is not going to be resolved quickly. I wrote about it when I did last year because I wanted to record the transition from the intense emotions of 9-11 and the weeks and months following it into the rebuilding, the transition from mourning into renewal, and to look hard at the way in which noble ambitions were ground down slowly but steadily 
by the realities of economics, social forces, and most of all, by politics. What we eventually do with Ground Zero is a question that truly transcends New York and tells us a lot about what we want our cities to be in the 21st century and what kind of a job we're doing so far at making them. Lately, it has not been encouraging. Probably all of you know that this process, somewhat troubled from the beginning, has taken something of a nosedive in the last few months and now has turned into a complicated, dreary mess. How's that for a sophisticated art historical term? <laughs> Leaving no doubt that this story is indeed more about politics than architecture. I'll get back to these latest developments in a couple of minutes. For now, let me say that it is no exaggeration to say that Ground Zero is really the first great urban design challenge of the 21st century. And it belongs to everyone, New Yorkers and non-New Yorkers alike, since not before that has any city, certainly not Ameri any American city, faced a situation quite like this one. In some ways, it is inevitable that we will compare it to the problem that New Orleans now faces post-Katrina. And certainly New Orleans has experienced the same sense of trauma, the same sense of being emotionally overwhelmed by sudden catastrophe that New York did in 2001. And indeed, although it appeared at the outset that New Orleans' problems were natural rather than man-made, making them in that way different, it soon became apparent that the impact of Hurricane Katrina was every bit as political and perhaps even every bit as avoidable as the impact of Al-Qaeda in New York. While the hurricane itself could not have been prevented, it might have had a significantly different impact had some different decisions been made before the hurricane struck in August, just as different decisions about security might have made for a less horrific result in New York in 2001. But now the question is what to do, how to rebuild, not just a building, but a whole urban center, an entire district. And here, too, New York and New Orleans share a challenge, although here I do have to say that the problem in New Orleans is vastly more severe since the very continued existence of the city as we have known it is at stake. And there are very real questions as to the viability of that city as it has been. We feared that that would be the case in New York in the awful weeks after 9-11, but it turned out not to be. Indeed, one of the amazing things was how quickly the rest of the city came back to health and sort of healed around the wound, so to speak, so that within a year or so, Ground Zero did not represent the continued uncertainty of New York, but only an odd and troubling void in the heart of a great and otherwise healthy city. New Orleans has no such luxury. Its trauma affects every neighborhood and poorer residential quarters more than rich business ones. And it goes to the heart of the city's economy and its reason for being. It is not a discreet wound around which the rest of the city can heal, gradually leaving only a small scar. It is the entire place and if there was, thankfully, less death in New Orleans in 2005 than there was in New York in 2001, what happened created a different kind of killing, the potential death of the city itself, given how many people lost not their lives, but their homes, their jobs, and their reason for being in New Orleans, and have left for other places never to return. There was fear of people leaving New York after 9-11, but as things turned out, only a handful, statistically speaking, left and failed to come back. But New Orleans will be lucky if it again reaches half its former size. And it should be said that that size was itself not healthy or strong. It was a vast underclass barely getting by, its existence hidden by the seductive glory of New Orleans' magical culture, an exquisite veneer atop a troubled place. 
Rebuilding New Orleans now involves making painful decisions about whether entire neighborhoods should ever again be occupied and about whether pride of place and home ownership, urgently important qualities, should take precedent over equally vital ecological and environmental concerns. New York is lucky in that it did not face this problem, nor did it face the question, once the initial trauma passed, of uncertainty about its very existence. Of course, the city's very purpose is in some ways always in question today, when we no longer have quite the same economic imperative to build cities that we once did. And we naturally sprawl out across the landscape rather than concentrate and build densely. And electronic communication suggests that we can function by being anywhere and do not need to be physically together to create communities and transact with one another. But that's another matter, the subject of another night, perhaps. And the forces behind that idea did not become significantly stronger after 9-11 in New York, even though they may have gotten a minor boost from those who were always looking for excuses to leave the city anyway. But the destruction of the World Trade Center did not, in the end, make that much of a dent in this larger trend. Looking back after four years, four and a half years, that is one of the most amazing things about New York's experience. Not that it had a huge effect on the entire city, but that it didn't. But let me go back to my main point, which is something that New York and New Orleans share, which is that we've had nothing in our recent history to prepare us for the implications of having a city which we think of as growing organically and slowly over time, suddenly blown apart. The city is not supposed to be subject to cataclysmic changes, whether by airplanes or hurricanes. We tend to believe it evolves slowly, even organically. Indeed, most of us are conditioned by the way things are today to be frustrated by the slowness of change in the city not by the speed and suddenness of it. And moreover, when something on the skyline is removed, the expected order of things is that it's happening for only one reason, so that it can be replaced by something bigger and more profitable. You may not believe that makes the city better, but on some level I think we've sort of counted on this as a kind of Darwinian order, the survival of the fittest. The bigger things on the skyline would drive out the smaller ones. But on September 11th, of course, we experienced something else. The biggest thing suddenly became the most vulnerable. This cataclysmic change turned the entire order of the skyline upside down. Now, I don't want to spend our limited time on the aesthetics of the skyline, but I will say that I was struck back in 2001 by the paradox that the hugeness of the World Trade Center towers, which in the 1970s seemed to represent a hated intrusion into the skyline, became what people missed most of all. What was demonized became what was mourned. Some of this, of course, is the result of the horrific circumstances. These are our first skyscraper martyrs. And that changes everything about how they are perceived. Indeed, I think looking back at the short life of the World Trade Center, there were three distinct phases to my perception of them, and maybe to yours as well. And this speaks very much to what Professor Turner alluded to a moment ago in his introduction. The first phase we could call resentment. What was this thing or this pair of things doing there, so big, so banal, so unmistakably intrusive? Then came the second phase, which we could call acceptance, or maybe grudging acceptance, coming from, first, a recognition that we can get used to anything, and that in the case of architecture, we'd better get used to it, since unlike a work of art or literature or music, we have to see a work of architecture every day. Acceptance was heightened in the case of the Twin Towers because there was also a recognition that these buildings did have at least some value as a kind of minimalist sculpture. 
They were well positioned vis-a-vis -vis each other and with their corners almost but not exactly touching. And their facades were largely of metal, not glass, which meant they did some rather nice shimmering things in the light. But nothing in this acceptance phase reached the level we might call admiration, at least not for me or most people. But then came the final phase, the one that we could never have been prepared for, the phase of martyrdom. We're not accustomed to thinking of buildings as martyrs, but the World Trade Center is now inexplicably bound up in a whole set of values that martyrdom embraces. If you doubt it, look at the sidewalk vendors in New York who are still four years later selling pictures of the Twin Towers the way they used to sell pictures of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. All of this has put this building so little respected by architectural historians and critics during its lifetime, essentially out of the range of architectural criticism. Martyrs, after all, are beyond criticism. I suspect that Joan of Arc may not have been a very nice lady, but you will never hear anyone say that. And people do not dare say anymore that the World Trade Center was not a very nice building. I should point out, if I can go off on just one more brief tangent that relates somewhat to the notion of these buildings as martyrs, that the World Trade Center, both for the terrorists who attacked it and for the people who mourn it, symbolized modernity. The Twin Towers, whatever we as architects and critics might have thought of them, advertised the promise of modernity to the world. The fact that there might have been a better advertisement for it is beside the point. To most of the world, these towers represented the modernist idea in its most perfect and fully realized form. And since to the attackers, modernity was an evil to be abolished, the towers, as the ultimate symbol of modernity, were the ultimate target. And now, they are mourned and they are beloved, as I said. Like human martyrs, the World Trade Center looms larger in death than it ever did in life. But these new associations people have with them have to change the way we think of modernity. It's now, more than ever before, American. It's now come to the stand for the life we want to protect in the same way the Capitol and the Pentagon and the Lincoln Memorial do. Modern architecture has never before been intimately tied to the identity of this country, but it is now. The terrorists actually managed to do what no architect, surely no architecture critic, has ever managed to do, which is to make this country cherish a piece of modern design and think of it as representing the national ideals. That doesn't mean that people will run around embracing modern buildings and feeling protective of them. Things don't work that simply. There's no automatic extension of the Trade Center's iconic status to other modern buildings. But I do think somehow that the context is different. And perhaps the fact that we now have a modernist icon in the American pantheon of landmarks, a symbol of patriotism along with buildings like the White House and the Capitol, has to have some effect. Anyway, let me begin by making my way, to make my way back to the question of Lower Manhattan and what happens there by saying that the good news about this rebuilding process over the last few years has been that everybody seems to care. Everybody wants to get involved. The bad news about this process over the last few years is that everybody seems to care and everybody wants to get involved. The public passions here are both encouraging and awful. Encouraging since public engagement in the future of the city has to be a good thing. If I didn't believe that, I should find another line of work. But awful since it is made for a staggeringly complicated, sticky mess. In many ways, more complicated today than it was when the planning process began. I can give you a quick sense of why this is so, merely by telling you a few of the players. Most of you probably know them, but just as it is helpful to have a 
recap of the lineup when you arrive at SBC Field. Here is the Ground Zero lineup. Batting first is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a vast bureaucracy which built the World Trade Center back in the 1960s and continues to own the land. Then there is a private developer, Larry Silverstein, to whom the Port Authority leased the Twin Towers only a few weeks before September 11th. So we already have a private owner leasing property from a public agency, or really a sort of half public, half private agency. Already not so simple. Then we have the state of New York, which controls the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, which Governor Pataki formed to oversee rebuilding, a special agency intended to control the process of rebuilding that doesn't actually own or control the land. The Port Authority does, but it doesn't really control it either since it leased it to a private developer. The developer no longer has anything since the buildings he had were destroyed, but he does have leases and contracts, which he believes obligates him to rebuild. Then we have the insurance companies, which have been fighting in court over the amount they would have to pay, which they wanted to be the minimum of three and a half billion dollars and Larry Silverstein sued to get double that amount, since the rebuilding, the insurance money rather, is the only real money he has to rebuild commercial space. And then there's the State Department of Transportation, which oversees the six-lane road on one side of Ground Zero, or the New York City Department of Transportation, which is in charge of the city streets on all the other sides, or the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, in charge of the subways that run underneath Ground Zero, except for the path trains to New Jersey, which are controlled by the Port Authority. And then there is the federal government, which has not been too involved, but which still controls a lot of the money. And then, just to make it even more complex, it's worth pointing out that the Port Authority is an unusual bi-state agency controlled by the governors of New York and New Jersey. So we have the unusual situation in which the governor of New Jersey technically has more say over what will happen at Ground Zero than the mayor of New York. And then, of course, in some ways more important than any of these others, there are all the various private constituencies, the family members of the people who died on September 11th, who are themselves comprised of many groups, such as firemen's widows, policemen's widows, husbands' wives, parents and children of office workers. They have had a lot to say, and it's not always been consistent with official voices. There are also the residents of Lower Manhattan who have been severely affected by the events of 9-11 and will be affected by anything that gets built, and office workers and tourists. And then, of course, there's everyone else. Given all this, is it a surprise things have not been so smooth? I don't want to recount the entire tale here. If I give you all the juicy details now, we will be here till breakfast. And anyway, then no one would ever have to buy my book. But I will make a few observations about where things stand. The fundamental problem, of course, is that the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation was never an independent organization. Its partner was the Port Authority, which decided it wanted to make sure it kept on earning money from this land. So seeing it primarily as profit-making real estate as it had been before. The one person who might have had the power to tell the Port Authority to act differently, the governor of New York, did not seem inclined to do so. It was a crucial failing. And it meant by allowing the Port Authority to call the shots and determine that the only official plans would be plans that replaced the 10.5 million square feet of office space the World Trade Center had contained meant that we never really had a public planning process, despite all the suggestions that we do, because the public was never brought in from the beginning to the question of what should happen. Every other decision flowed from that initial and flawed premise. Well, in the difficult months right after September 11th, people seemed to be divided between those who wanted to leave the land vacant in perpetuity as a memorial and tribute to those who died there. Mayor Giuliani was one of those. And those people who wanted to build as fast as possible to 
show the terrorists, as it were, that we hadn't been defeated. Get going, get back to business, let's show them. And a subset of this group, a rather strong one at that, were the voices calling for rebuilding the Twin Towers just as they had been. I've never been very convinced that there was much sense to rebuilding the towers, and not only because it is naive and silly to believe that Osama bin Laden would be shocked into decency by this act. I question whether we should be spending several billion dollars to recreate one of the great architectural mistakes of the 20th century. As I said earlier, while we un understandably treat these buildings now with the respect due to martyrs, as works of architecture, they were full of problems. And rebuilding them denies the enormity of the failings of their architecture. And it suggests that we've learned nothing from the last 30 years in architecture and urban design, whereas, in fact, we have learned a great deal. And lastly, rebuilding denies the reality of history, since it tries to put things back just the way they were, as if nothing had happened. A lovely thought, but profoundly wrong, I think, since it sends a signal that we think of the city as a kind of theme park, as just a make-believe place, not a real place. Real places show their history. They don't deny it. But if we cannot, but they cannot do nothing but show their history, especially if the history is as painful as this part. And that's the key dilemma of designing and building at Ground Zero. We have to do two con contradictory things, to commemorate and to rebuild to look back and to look forward. And we have to do it on the same piece of land. We have to blend, you might say, the awesome and the everyday. In any case, over time, these two points of view I mentioned, leave it empty and honor its sacredness, or build back commercial space fast, seem to merge together. And most people seem to accept the fact that we should do some of both. And the challenge was how to combine them. Some of you may remember probably the hectic days of 2002 and 2003 when there was an active and very widely publicized planning process, a planning process compromised, though, as I said a moment ago, by the fact that the Port Authority's wrong-headed building program always held sway. Eventually, though, that brought us to the master plan designed by the architect Daniel Liebeskind, which is still technically the plan for the site. <coughs> Liebeskind took as the basis for his plan the belief that it's not possible to design this site as an ordinary commercial site, and it's not possible to design it solely as a commemorative site, and that the architectural challenge is to figure out how to weave it all together. That's the paradox around which the whole process revolves. And I think Liebeskind genuinely tried to figure out a way around it. We need to renew, and we need also to commemorate. How do these things, the everyday and the sacred, go together? On some level, this land will never be truly ordinary, whatever use we make of it eventually. What will save Lower Manhattan, though, in the end, will not only be those things that are honorific and great and emphasize that it is a place with a unique history, but also things that emerge out of the forces that were at play in that neighborhood on September the 10th, which is to say more housing, more cultural facilities, more open space for everyday use, more restaurants. The neighborhood of downtown Manhattan has been evolving away from being a pure financial center and in the direction of mixed use for the last generation. And the only possible future for it is to incorporate a continuation of this evolution. So a good part of its salvation, in my view, will come in continuing in the directions in which it was going on September the 10th. I should point out that in this way, there's another parallel between New York and New Orleans. 
however different these cities' situations may be. As long Manhattan's future will ultimately depend on a continuation of those forces that were at play on September 10th, it is similarly true that the real issues that matter in New Orleans are the issues that were already there on August 28th, which is to say the poverty of the city, the question of the tourist economy, and the extent to which it masked deeper underlying problems, the impact of sprawl in that region, the failures to invest in infrastructure, and the, quest the question of preservation versus new construction, and the danger of what new construction should be, the risks of theme parkization in New Orleans, and the grave environmental issues facing not just the city but that entire region. Every one of these are issues that were present before Katrina, but were not treated with much urgency. Of course, before Katrina, nothing in New Orleans was treated with much urgency, which was always part of the city's appeal. But now, of course, there is no choice. In New Orleans, as in New York, the prime effect of catastrophe has not been to raise new problems. That's a fallacy. The prime effect of catastrophe has been to, been to put the old problems on the front burner and to make them impossible to ignore. Anyway, to return to New York and the Liebeskind plan for Ground Zero, its virtue, in my view, is that it truly did seek to express the balance between the awesome and the everyday, and it did so in several ways. Daniel Liebeskind kept the entire area around the footprints of the original Twin Towers depressed below grade on the premise that this would remove them from the hurly-burly of busy streets and that there would be something symbolic in the act of descending to honor. And he exposed the slurry wall, the concrete retaining wall, from the original World Trade Center that had survived the horrors of September 11th as a reminder of continuity and survival. And then he planned a huge tower as a symbol in the sky, a combination office tower and dramatic element in the skyline for the northwest corner of the site, the culmination of a series of five towers spiraling upward as they move from south to north around the site. And then he put cultural buildings around the memorial. Unfortunately, even though the plan remains officially the master plan, little of it is going ahead as Liebeskind had envisioned. In fact, so many changes have been made, it's impossible to know where to begin. Maybe with the Freedom Tower, which is what the governor named Liebeskind's huge tower. Larry Silverstein, the developer, insisted that another architect, David Childs of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, design the tower. And he wanted it to move ahead on a fast enough track so that the groundbreaking could occur in the summer of 2004 before the Republicans came to New York for their convention. It's always so nice to know there are no political elements to the planning process, isn't it? Anyway, Childs and Liebeskind were told to collaborate, and they did not work, want to work together, and they did not do so well. They worked on it through the fall of 2003, and at the very end of that year, unveiled a design that, well, the fairest thing to say is that it didn't represent the best of either one of their work. I don't believe you ask Matisse and Picasso to paint a picture together. The governor, however, thought it was wonderful and held the symbolic groundbreaking, but then nothing much else happened because, in fact, there were no tenants for the building and there was not really a completed design. And then, in the spring of last year, the New York City Police Department suddenly announced that the building did not meet security standards and insisted it would have to be changed. So it was completely redesigned this past May this time by Childs himself, who got Liebeskind out of the picture. But the result is even farther from the original idea. Freedom Tower number two is simpler, starker, blunter, and in every way more ordinary than Freedom Tower number one, which wasn't very good to start with. It's more of an office tower on top of a bunker. It's set on top of a 200-foot wide, 200-foot high, solid base, 
and it renders any notion of urban design irrelevant. It will be a cold, chilling, forbidding presence. And then there is the memorial. Since Liebeskin's plan technically included only a setting for a memorial, even though the sunken area with its exposed slurry wall was such a powerful statement that it seemed in itself to have been all but a memorial. The competition is a story in itself, 5,201 entries, the largest number in the history of architectural competitions, and an unusually sophisticated jury that happened, unfortunately, not too much like the Liebeskin plan, and encouraged the selection of a winning design by an architect named Michael Arad, who openly defied Liebeskin's plan and raised the sunken area that Liebeskind had made his centerpiece. Liebeskind's plan has also been compromised with the cultural buildings which have their own set of problems. He didn't get the commissions to design them. Frank Gehry is doing a performing arts building at Ground Zero, which will be shared by a dance company and a theater company. And the Norwegian firm of Snohetta has designed a museum building which was originally to have contained a new home for an organization called the Drawing Center and to have housed a new institution called the International Freedom Center, kind of quasi-museum that was not quite formed, but now all of this has fallen apart too. <clears throat> the foundation that has been set up to build the memorial and the cultural buildings doesn't have enough money to do all of it, and understandably will focus on the memorial first which is going to cost at least $500 million and maybe more. The cultural organizations feel squeezed out and left behind since they have to wait a long while and raise a lot of money themselves. And several of them aren't sure it was really such a great idea to have been chosen for ground zero after all. The drawing center and the freedom center ran into much bigger problems than money. They came under attack by some of the families of victims of the tragedy as not quite right to be there next to the memorial, especially since the Drawing Center, which is a small and excellent arts institution in New York, has over time shown a few pieces of art that some people thought were not quite respectful enough or patriotic enough. And it was suggested by none other than the governor that the Drawing Center promise to show only certain kinds of art at Ground Zero that would not disturb anyone's sensibility. The International Freedom Center was hit by <clears throat> the same kind of attack. It was conceived to show the struggle for freedom around the world, but some of the families were upset that it would not focus entirely on the story of Ground Zero and the American so-called War on Terror, and felt that a broader message did not belong there. Once again, however, we might say, if not here, where? And why doesn't a broader message belong here? The governor, rather than choosing to remind the small group of families that Ground Zero was not entirely theirs, capitulated to them and told the Freedom Center that it was no longer welcome. The Drawing Center left of its own accord. So these two things, in my view, removed what minor shred of credibility there was left to the planning process. It isn't that either organization was so critical to Ground Zero on its own. The Drawing Center will find another home, and the International Freedom Center was never more than an idea anyway. The governor's decision to bypass the long and inclusive political process that had selected those organizations and to favor, instead, the views of a fringe group of families he was terrified of offending destroyed the very planning process that he himself had set in motion. And the irony of censoring the contents of a museum to be constructed in the shadow of the so-called Freedom Tower appears to have escaped Governor Pataki. If the bunker base of the Freedom Tower, which seems to me to be a symbol not of freedom but of its absence, doesn't do enough to contradict the aims of an open society, Limiting cultural organizations to sanitized, pre-approved exhibitions surely completes the job. 
It's a remarkable message to send the world. Yes, we rebuild, but we do so by barricading ourselves behind solid concrete walls. And if that is not enough, then we make sure that any culture we show the public here is fully pre-checked for controversy. It's a dismal vision of what freedom means four years after September 11th. Then again, it isn't much of a vision of what architecture means either. Perhaps the only bright spot at Ground Zero right now involves another building, the Port Authority's new transportation center. The Port Authority hired the Spanish architect Santiago Calatrava, not a bad idea, and Calatrava's extravaganza is the one piece of architecture so far proposed for Ground Zero that everyone seems to like. It's a striking irony that the Port Authority, which early on seemed like the villain of this story, has turned out to be the patron of what most people consider their favorite building. But that's only getting started, that building, and it's all we have to show so far for four years of struggle, <coughs> millions upon millions of dollars, and anguished debate. The failing of all of this, in my view, goes back to the governor and the very beginning of the process and to the wrong-headed belief that it was right to take the path of least resistance on September the 12th, which was to leave control of the site in the hands of the Port Authority and Larry Silverstein. I'm delighted that Mayor Bloomberg has now publicly raised the possibility of removing Silverstein, but of course the mayor doesn't actually have the authority since it's a, not a city project but a state one. For now, we are still stuck with a developer who insists on building office space we do not need with money we do not have and demanding subsidies for it as well. And I have to say that even if the Freedom Tower does go up in its present form, or even if there's an improved version of it, there's an eerie aspect to the whole story of this building. And those of you who know much about the history of New York <coughs> may guess what it is. It's the notion of <coughs> erecting the world's tallest building on this particular site, even though there is no strong economic reason for doing so but only because it's being pushed ahead fast by a powerful governor of New York who wants to see it happen and says, don't worry, he'll put state offices there if they're not commercial tenants. You don't have to know a lot of history to know that we've actually seen this particular movie before. It's actually the story of Nelson Rockefeller and the original World Trade Center. I desperately hope that the Ground Zero story doesn't turn out to be only a story of our failure to learn from history. We have certainly learned from history in terms of urban design. There's a broad general consensus about putting back streets onto this site and avoiding the superblock mentality that drove the original World Trade Center scheme. It's one of the good things there. If we think of urban planning in the last generation, as a movement from the age of Robert Moses to the age of Jane Jacobs. And while that is an oversimplification, it is not entirely wrong. Well, even with all the problems, we are closer to the Jane Jacobs side of the continuum than the Robert Moses side. The public has been involved, even if it wasn't brought in when it should have been at the beginning, to participate in a real dialogue about program about what should happen on this piece of land. The street grid is going to be restored. Street life is sought after, even if it isn't certain to be achieved. And mixed use is considered a goal by almost everyone. Almost all the planners have been insistent on a mix of cultural facilities and improved transportation access as part of what we do. So we've learned something since the days when the World Trade Center first went up. But I don't know that we've learned enough. For all the talk of public participation, as I said, there never really was any public involvement in figuring out what to do with this site. The public 
was never given a say. It was only given a say in what <coughs> functions that others had already chosen for this site might look like. That's not a true public planning process. It's more of a beauty contest. There was never any serious willingness to consider other uses. There was never any look at housing on the site, which is a sad loss because that's what there's a demand for in lower Manhattan now far more than anything else. Even the mayor, in fact, wants it. And it could make money if commercial priorities are really all that important. But the Port Authority doesn't want it, and that's the end of the story. I come back, in the end, to paradox. We need to combine the awesome and the everyday here, and that's not easy. At ground zero, as in New Orleans, we need to be bold and we need to be populist. And these things do not always go together. We need to respect quiet and emptiness. And we need to suggest activity and renewal. We need to move slowly and deliberately and reflectively. And we need to move decisively and actively. We need to make a new place. And we need to connect and enhance the old. But difficult and seemingly contradictory as all of these things are, if you think about it, they are part of the art of city building, and they always have been. The real truth about Ground Zero is not that it is different from the challenges we've always faced when building cities. It is just more so. I'm discouraged about the state of things right now at Ground Zero, as you can plainly see. This process, always something of a roller coaster, is now in a down phase, and it's not looking very good. But I still believe that this place is where our dreams and realities meet with greater intensity than ever before. And I still hope that it is where they will ultimately come together. Thank you. Do you want to do questions? Or, yeah. We can do a few. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, uh, Paul Goldberger has agreed to take uh, some questions for uh, a certain amount of time. So I think I'll just let you call on sure. people as sure. they... If there are any, happy to take a couple of questions at least. Uh, yes, sir. Well, there, and there was one 100 years ago, too. Exactly 100 years ago, yes. Is there anything we can do now so that we could avoid some of the problems of lower Well, I actually think, and I, I, I say what I'm about to say with some hesitancy because I don't want to argue for complacency here, but I actually do think that the current earthquake building codes are um, so much more advanced than anything that existed not only during the last earthquake, I mean, you know, in, in recent earthquakes or in the last couple of generations, that the odds of total catastrophe are at least somewhat less severe. Um, and the, but I said, I say that with hesitation because uh, I don't want it to be a prescription for complacency, but um, certainly uh, there is, unlike, let's say, the New Orleans situation, where um, there, were, there had been warnings that they were not prepared and there was complete indifference and denial and everything else, um, it's as if California were operating under the same building codes that existed in 1930. And it's not. I mean, there, there's a, a vastly more rigorous system in place that is much more protective and so forth. Uh, and not only in terms of all new construction, but retrofitting much older construction. So um, 
that already makes it different. Um, the problem we are facing in New York um, was is a, a terrible failure to um, really take, see this as essentially a public problem and allowing it to uh, be, on the one hand, a piece of profit-making real estate for the Port Authority, and on the other hand, a place of commemoration. And those two things really are in conflict. And the governor was not courageous and determined enough to step in and, and take charge. He just sort of thought he could let all these things play out and that would allow things to happen fast and it would be his great legacy. Well, in fact, he's uh, <clears throat> leaving office with nothing built, showing how wrong he was about that. Um, the lesson there, and I, I don't know whether this is analogous in New Orleans or in some potential catastrophe here, is the need for real significant public vision. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not architects who can do it, and it's not citizens either alone, because one of the other things that we're that New Orleans is going to have to understand is that planning is not democracy. Planning is not a matter of a referendum. You, you do not end up, while, while, while you cannot plan a city well if you cut the public off from any engagement, as in the days of Robert Moses, the opposite of that is not the solution to a problem either. It's not something you put up to a vote. Um, and uh, I don't think we would get places of greatness and vision by putting them up to a popular vote. What you need are leaders with vision who can bring the public along and get them to buy into a, a powerful vision. Let, uh, look at, say, something like, um, the funny analogy, because this did not come out of catastrophe, but I'll make it anyway. Um, everything that was done in Paris in the 80s under François Mitterrand, the Grand Projet. Um, those were not just the work of the architects like I.M. Pei and all the others, nor was it just a politician. It was a politician with enough vision to convince the citizenry to follow the vision of an architect. And we have not had that at all. We've had, a, uh, in New York, a weak governor thinking he could um, get things done very quickly by taking the path of least resistance, and it turned out to be wrong. In New Orleans, on the other hand, I think we have right now um, an under understandably given the incredible amount of human suffering that's gone on there and the um, desire to be fair to people who never had very much to start with and have lost what they've had, we see a somewhat misguided attempt to do the whole thing as democracy, but that may not work either. So it's a tough, it's a very tough thing. Yes, sir. In every, both literally and figuratively, yes, yes. And his arm wrestling with the legislature over the uh, Bay Bridge, do you have right. any comments to make on, on that, that political architecture? Um, I actually haven't seen the new design for the, the, the second Bay, the new Bay Bridge. Um, so I can't comment on it uh, as a piece of design, um, nor do I know much about the economics and whether it sort of makes any sense. Uh, the one thing I can say is that I believe deeply and profoundly that, that places need to make major infrastructure investments, not only uh, because that's what keeps them going and makes them work, and today we profit from the investments made by previous generations at a much larger scale than anything we are willing to do now, uh, which is ominous for the future, but also as symbols. Um, and uh, we need to be thinking not only in terms of preserving great landmarks of the past, but 
of the obligation to create sort of the landmarks of the next generation so that there will be new history to preserve 50, 60 years from now. Um, I don't know enough about the particulars of the uh, Bay Bridge issue to know where in that it fits, except um, I generally believe that significant public investment in major public works is important for all places and all across this country we do less of it today than our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents generations did and that's going to be a real problem not only because things fall apart and get old and we're not renewing them but also because we're not building new symbols either which is important yes sir struck by the Rick Burns, James Sanders yeah. documentary, in which they pointed out that for New Yorkers, the world, the New Yorkers were unaware of the symbolic value that the World Trade Center had globally. So I guess my question is, how are New Yorkers now regarding Ground Zero and the Ground Zero project? Uh, has it changed in the last four years? Yeah sense of that your evidence is sort of indicative or is it even more so? I think at this point, actually, most people are getting pretty worn out about it. Um, I mean, it was, you know, there was a time a couple of years ago when it was in the headlines all the time. And uh, uh, you even had, you know, all the architects competing about the master plan, you know, on Oprah and stuff like that. I mean, it was in, in a, a sort of strange moment in the history of architecture. I sort of felt like, as a writer, writing about it, I mean, as if I were sort of a, I don't know, a, a sports reporter who'd spent much of his career covering lacrosse and suddenly it was the Super Bowl. I mean, it's sort of, yeah, suddenly this was the story that everybody cared about. Uh, and that was sort of uh, a remarkable moment in the culture. Um, that has faded. It um, perks up when things, small things happen or medium things happen. And the controversy over the Freedom Center and the Drawing Center and the collapse of the whole cultural component of the project and the uh, potential of censorship um, got la late last fall uh, a sort of spike of interest again. Um, but in fact, you can't stay that engaged in anything for that long. And so now, you know, it's just kind of there. And people do pay less and less attention to it, um, which um, could be either good or bad. You know, it, it, it could mean that uh, a good plan could actually happen and there might not be the level of controversy, or it means that a bad plan can also happen and, and be sort of not, not noticed as much. Um, I mean, there's still, you know, there's still a, reporter from the New York Times who is on a full-time ground zero beat. I mean, it's not as though it's faded completely, but it isn't the subject of such major intense uh, engagement. Um, I have a feeling that when the governor, the New York governor's election is this November, when there's a new governor, um, and particularly if it's a Democrat, it's very likely that they will actually say that even though millions and millions of dollars have been spent, so little has in fact been accomplished and decided that it's just better to start over and write it off and that that will put it back on the front burner again. But I may be wrong. We'll see. Um, so, yes, sir. Of all the submissions, you mean to the, in the master plan competition, yeah. right then? Um, I, I sort of actually did like the Liebeskind plan, even though uh, um, I think he sort of behaved kind of foolishly since then and, um, and has not endeared himself to anybody. Uh, but he did have a good sense of the balance between commemoration and renewal. Uh, his sunken idea I thought was very good. 
uh, and his notion of the um, tower where it was and his basic design for it was potentially good. Uh, there was something hokey about some aspects of his plan. And uh, I thought that the Norman Foster one was stunningly beautiful. Foster is a uh, vastly better architect than Liebeskind. But it was also largely unbuildable and did not follow the uh, guidelines. It was one vast office building, um, not a real master plan for the whole area. Um, the Vignoli plan, or that which was what was called the Think Team, was um, which was the one that almost won, but then ultimately didn't, because the governor didn't like it, um, and chose Liebeskind instead, was that sort of skeletal version of the World Trade Center as a vast 100-story memorial. And then cultural buildings would be sort of stuck into the open, uh, open uh, truss work, sort of. Um, it would have been visually very powerful, in the end, I'm not sure it didn't err on the side of too much commemoration in a certain way, in that um, it would have meant that the site forever would have been tied to the past in this way, not partially but wholly. And I don't know that that would have been in the end right, even though it would have been the most compelling image by far. But of course, now we've got sort of nothing, you know, and the uh, Liebeskind would have had the, the sunken memorial and the tower as the two icons. And now we don't seem to be having either one of them, really. So, anyway. Uh, yes, this will be the last one. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, I'm from the War List, and I'm wondering if you were sitting in Mayor Ray Nathan's chair right now, given the things that you said about the continuum between yeah. the Democratic Sure. You know, what, what would you Right. How would they be? Oh, if I were in the mayor, well, I'm very glad I'm not. Let me start with that first. Um, uh, I think um, I think the city alone, and this is not to suggest that, the, that there's not a huge amount the mayor can do, but in fact, the city cannot solve its problems because so many of them deal with massive in infrastructure issues that are federal and state, not city. Um, and so the first thing to keep in mind is that uh, there is a, a really deep question as to the viability of that whole region, given the rise of the water level and the whole ecology of the whole lower delta area. Um, what I would do is probably um, begin to make plans for the replacement of the Ninth Ward and some of the other uh, districts that should never have really been built in the first place and not go back to them despite the fact that um, you know, the, the pride in home ownership that people have there is one of the things we cherish most in this country and you, you uh, discourage at your peril and yet I don't think there really is a choice. I don't, under, I don't see how it can truly be viable. Um, as I said earlier, you know, the issues there are issues that were present before Katrina, which is that um, New Orleans has a barely viable economy anyway. Uh, New Orleans has the lowest percentage of foreign-born workers of any city in America. It has the lowest percentage of immigration. It is as much a closed and self-sustaining, self-referential society as any city in this country. And in fact, um, the combination of um, isolation, not physical isolation, but isolation sort of culturally and demographically with 
the environmental and ecological problems is a very, very hard thing to uh, um, resolve. And it has had, you know, it has the most wonderful culture of any city in this country. But as I said before, that's a kind of veneer over um, a very troubled city underneath. And given that almost every American city today exists as a cultural phenomenon almost more than an economic phenomenon. New Orleans goes farther than most in, in not having a real and true economy except a tourist economy. Um, I mean, you know, San Francisco is much, much healthier, but many of the same issues remain. Uh, you know, the financial center of California is now Los Angeles, not San Francisco. The banks are not here anymore, they're there. Um, most financial institutions. There is probably more money and more, there's certainly more money, you don't have to know a lot about it, in Silicon Valley than in, in the city of San Francisco. But if you are wealthy and sophisticated, you live in San Francisco because it's nice to live in a wonderful city and live a certain kind of life, uh, as opposed to the city being an economic engine. To some extent, that's where all cities are going anyway, because we don't need them as manufacturing and industrial centers the way we once did. Um, but how we can maintain some sense of, um, what's the best word here, I wonder, Vi uh, conviction and viability to them that makes them something other than theme parks is one of the great challenges American cities face. New Orleans faces it more urgently and more desperately than any, any other right now. Uh, and in New Orleans, of course, the theme park side is the only part that was ever healthy. So it's a really, really tough problem there. Um, all of that is an extremely long and convoluted way of saying I don't actually have the answer to that. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest enough to admit that. I mean, I can talk around the problem, but I do not, there, is, there is not a simple answer. And, but I think it will involve ultimately facing some very, very painful realities, which is what I was trying to say in my, uh, my comments earlier about it. But thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. I want to remind everybody that there are sweets and coffee and tea in the lobby outside the door here and the opportunity to continue this conversation there. Thank you all for coming. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.